0: Welcome to Rising. We have a very exciting show for you today, Brianna. What's up?
1: Well, first, we've got some breaking news this morning. Liz Truss resigned as Prime Minister of the UK just moments ago, bringing an end to an embattled six-week tenure that saw Truss's approval rating plummet and her own party turn on her over a dramatic, a, a dramatic economic downturn. Her 44-day term is the shortest in UK Prime Minister history.
2: I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent, and our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills, on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low tax, high growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognize though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning As leader of the Conservative Party.
0: And we're so lucky to have Julia Manchester, our colleague at The Hill, joining us in studio to help break this all down. Julia, How do we get here? What is going on?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Just to quote the TikTok meme, it's "What on earth is going on in the House (laughs) of Commons?" Um, Look, I think this was always going to be a tumultuous um, tenure for Liz Truss, no matter how long she served. She came in at a time when there was so much backlash against Boris Johnson, now the former Prime Minister. Now, of course, he resigned for different reasons. He was very much um, facing a slew of scandals uh, about COVID and so on and so forth. so with Liz Truss, though, this is economics, and she was trying to implement what has been called Trussonomics, if you will, like slashing tax cuts at, you know, historic rates in the United Kingdom. The issue with that is there didn't appear to be a plan as to how to pay for those tax cuts, especially as we're mm-hmm. seeing record inflation, not just in the UK, but really around the world. So there was an issue. And then, of course, there was internal turmoil within the Conservative Party. We saw that her minister resigned just days ago only to be replaced by Jeremy Hunt, who, if you remember 19, ran against Boris Johnson for conservative party leadership. So there was quite a bit of internal party turmoil here. Um, I don't think it's necessarily surprising that she resigned. However, I think the length of her tenure is certainly short. She is the uh, serving prime minister in British history. I think the last one was George Canning in 1827 for five months, and he died. Liz Truss mm-hmm. is resigning after 44 days. So uh, certainly a surprising start to our Tuesday and I guess midday in the United Kingdom. Yeah, Rock counting uh, her tenure in Scaramucci's earlier yeah. <laughs> or <where he> came up. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: yeah. We gotta have to know what the metric conversion is for Scaramucci.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. But look, the, the contrast that you Johnson is an interesting one because th- that is someone who has been under scrutiny and criticism for a longer period of time. And it is interesting to note that Liz Trust would have not Last, of, Paul Krugman wrote an article, an opinion piece yesterday in the Times, arguing that the list trust is fundamental, is that she charted out a place in the kind of um, gestalt of opinions uh, that is occupied by very few people, this kind of libertarian zone, fiscally conservative and socially liberal. And that perhaps- It's just
0: me, her, <laughs> me and her in this <laughs> empty quadrant. I yeah. mean, is, is,
1: it, is it the case that there's just not the same kind of brilliance um, in the political sphere if you are uh, advancing tax cuts, uh, up cuts for the rich as she was doing, without also having that social grist to keep working class people with you and, and kind of being anti-immigration and having some of these uh, anti-politics uh, touch, touch points in your discourse as well?
3: Yeah, it seems like that was really the case, um, you know, during her tenure, but I think at least from an American perspective and the coverage that we were able to see, we saw that so much of her tenure was really overshadowed by economics mm-hmm. in the state of the economy, and I think part of the reason for that is that you know, over the past years since Britain formally or voted to leave the European Union have seen a lot of turmoil when it comes to their politics. I mean, David Campbell Cameron left, then you had Theresa, you, you had mm-hmm. B- Boris Johnson, now Liz Truss and whoever comes after her. And it, it, it leads to a, very much a, a place of concern among a lot of people. Well, they don't know what's next.
0: And all of those people you mentioned, those are all the previous um, leaders, those are all con- – it, it's remarkable to me that this, the, the U.K. has been governed by Conservative Party since Gordon Brown left in 2010. It's a 12-year war with, with – with, much turnover in, in terms of leadership, all these embarrassing fights, and yet and yet with the conservative coalition remains in power. So I guess, will the, is this one thing too many? Um, you know, will labor make a comeback? I and mean, the approval number, right. like the people's, who would you prefer to be in charge is very much labor right now. Labor has been in the wilderness for, for what would be in the U.S. context. a just totally unprecedented amount of time.
3: Right, I'm wondering, you know, it probably has to do with the factor. I would guess, has to, that conservatives maybe politically may just be more savvy in <laughs> the United mm-hmm. Kingdom to be able to capitalize mm. on that more than labor has been able to. But, you know, in the era that Britain finds itself itself and, you know, outside of the European Union, as Russ said that in her statement, you know, as Russia's war in Ukraine threatens the stability of Europe, much of the Western and, you know, world in general, I'm wondering if there will be a shift among British people, you know, to say... We've ha- we've had it with this uh, type of politics. Well,
0: credit pro, um, as was Boris Johnson uh, d- defending Ukraine, mm. Ukraine, etc. Right. I don't don't know how well that fits out here. That a lot of actual conservative voters are not uh, as for an unlimited commitment mm-hmm. to yeah. Ukraine's defense as their own person. Certainly not as much as the sort of. Biden administration here. I wonder if there's a dynamic in the UK. Yeah,
3: and I think that I have no idea. I, I, I don't know exactly. I will certainly find out soon. But I think a lot of it has to do with the state of the economy. I mean, here in the there is economic hurt um, with inflation and these, you know, rest prices and such. You know, we see we seem to see that happening in the United Kingdom. I would imagine that there is that question as well. Yeah, it's
1: fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about that. I'm sure we'll continue to follow this story in the case. And coming up next, I'll tell you what's on my radar.
0: Brianna, I'm dying to know what's on your radar.
1: <laughs> well, Robbie. Bill Maher went viral once again over the weekend after he weighed in on the artist formerly known as Kanye West's anti-Semitic statements. His guest of choice for this segment? Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, if you're wondering why Maher would bring a former head of state who is currently in the middle of his own re-election campaign to weigh in on the manic ravings of a deeply troubled American rap artist, you're not alone. But listening even briefly to the interview reveals Maher's rhetorical strategy here this wasn't just about rebuking anti-Semitism. Any number of people or institutions could have done that, including, say, the Anti-Defamation League. Even celebrities like Jennifer Aniston or most deaf, take your pick. But Ye's week-long cycle of unhinged interviews, tweets, and leaked DMs was just a hook for a subject for which Mara has long demonstrated a significant appetite, erasing the ongoing humanitarian abuses by the Israeli government against Palestinians. Once you realize that this is the real subject of Marr's segment, the choice of guest becomes strikingly clear. Lest you think I'm being unfair, let's listen to the interview. After asking Netanyahu an initial jokey question about whether Israel will, quote, retaliate against the West for gay's anti Semitic remarks, Marr asked the former Israeli prime minister to respond to a series of quotes from American Congress members, which he argues are evidence that anti Semitism is as big a problem on the left as it is on the right. He goes on to execute a familiar pivot, characterizing a substantive criticism of the treatment of Palestinians by Israel as de facto anti-Semitism.
4: I Just want to read a few quotes from American congressmen, just to Congress people rather, just to, to show that uh, Kanye's West is uh, Kanye West's comment is not really, out of order with some things that are said by people in more official positions. Uh, Here's one, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. 10 years ago, if you read that to me, I thought that would be from Hezbollah. That's an American congressperson. Another American congressperson says, the reality of Israel's apartheid government goes on to say, the occupation and ethnic cleansing Palestinians live with every day Another one says Israel it targets media sources so the world can't see Palestinians being massacred. Uh, I have three questions for you. Are you massacring Palestinians? Are you ethnic cleansing and are you an apartheid state?
5: No, no, and no. I mean, these are all ridiculous uh, charges against the one democracy in the Middle East, the one democracy that upholds human rights, that defends freedom, and is America's best allies.
1: Now, I want to be very clear about this. The first quote Mar read about Israel having hypnotized the world, which is from Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, is inexcusable in its promotion of anti-Semitic tropes. Omar has acknowledged this and apologized, writing, In all sincerity, it was after my CNN interview that I heard from Jewish orgs that my use of the word hypnotize and the ugly sentiment it holds was offensive. I have no interest in defending that statement or pushing any Jewish person to accept that apology. None at all. But the next statement is of a very different character. Let's take a closer look. The statement is a tweet from Rashida Tlaib, which Mar notably does not include in full, nor does he include the broader context. Tlaib had tweeted, The reality of Israel's apartheid government, supported by billions in unconditional American funding, cannot be denied. We will not allow the president's visit to whitewash the brutality of the occupation and ethnic cleansing Palestinians must live with every day. Tlaib's statement quoted, uh, quote, tweeted a statement from Jewish Voice for Peace and Action, an organization of Jews and allies working for peace and equality for all Palestinians and Israelis. Jewish Voices for Peace's statement was directed at President Joe Biden, who was visiting Israel at the time. The organization tweeted a statement from Tlaib that criticized Isra- the Israeli government for forcing 1,000 Palestinians out of their homes in Masafir a Palestinian community on the West Bank so that the Israeli military could use the land for military training exercises. Quote, US war crimes are literally happening under your nose, emphasized the Jewish pro-peace organization. UN human rights experts at the time urgently called on Israel and the international community to stop the forced evictions, which an Israeli court determined were lawful on the basis that, get this, aerial maps from the 1980s showed no permanent settlements. The rub, <laughs> that the residents of the land are nomadic people who often occupy the region's capes rather than standalone structures, making the probative value of aerial maps moot at best and pretextual at worst. I say all of this to make it clear that Talib's tweet was not a subjective personal claim based in anti-Semitism. It was an assessment of a state, Israel, and its actions against a community an assessment that's backed by human rights authorities like the UN and Amnesty International. These same humanitarian organizations have also described Israel as an apartheid state. For example, UN Special Rapporteur for the occupied region, Michael Link, explained earlier this year that, quote, There is today in the Palestinian territory occupied by Israel since 1967, a deeply discriminatory dual legal and political system that privileges the 700,000 Israeli Jewish settlers living in the 300 illegal Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. In a UN report released just this past Tuesday, UN Special Rapporteur Francesca Albanese wrote, quote, Realizing the inalienable right of the Palestinian people to self-determination requires dismantling once and for all the Israeli settler colonial occupation and its apartheid practices. And that's not all. Israel's former attorney general has characterized his own country as an apartheid re- regime. Former chair of Israel's Moretz Party echoed these sentiments in 2006, accusing Netanyahu of operating at the service of the apartheid lobby. There's a long list of Israeli leaders who have echoed this claim, and you can read about them in this MSNBC op-ed by Mehdi Hassan, but I won't belabor the point. It is obviously the case that if criticizing a state's actions were considered to be de facto anti-Semitism, that would provide a level of cover to said state to enact horrific abuses without any international criticism. And it would make anti-Semites out of a a significant number of Israeli citizens, American Jews, and Israeli political leaders. Describing Israel as having occupied Palestinian territory is uncontroversial at this point, as is the two-tiered system of rights in the region, a.k.a. apartheid. Netanyahu all but admits this in the interview. Take a listen.
4: But could you become an apartheid state? The the critics of Israel here in America and some in your own country uh, talk about the fact that Israel is kind of a population time bomb. And that if 51 percent of Israel would become Arab, because you do have Arab citizens who are actually treated better in Israel with more rights and more freedoms than they are in their own and other Arab countries. Uh, But if 51 percent of Israel became uh, Arab, then you would have to become an apartheid state. Is that something that
5: you think about as much as your critics do? Because I think they don't have the facts right. I mean the there about twenty percent of israel's population is arabs and they're really the only arabs uh, in the middle east to enjoy full and equal civic rights in in the israeli democracy and i've um, also made it an effort to incorporate them in the tremendous success story that is israel and i'm happy to see that that is uh, happening but the demographic balance is maintained The, the most important thing is the democratic balance is maintained because everyone has a right to uh, be part of the Israeli democracy and the Israeli Israeli success story, I don't think that's a real issue. I think it's a a bogus uh, charge.
1: Notice that Netanyahu compares the rights of Palestinians to other Arabs in the region, not to the rights of Jewish Israelis, whose rights quite obviously eclipse those of Palestinians. And his statements about maintaining the, quote, democratic balance give the game away. A commitment to having an explicitly Jewish state in a region which is overwhelmingly Muslim means denying the Muslim population equal participation in the political process. In April of last year, Human Rights Watch released a report detailing why Israel's actions met the definition of apartheid. They cite the same demographic threat Netanyahu openly alludes to here, along with policies aimed at mitigating said threat like concentrating most Palestinians in dense enclaves where they lack access to basic needs like water and live under harsh authoritarian military rule. And yet speaking out about this invites harsh pushback from the political establishment. When Rashida Tlaib spoke out against progressives who ignore the plight of Palestinians, or so-called progressives who ignore the plight of Palestinians, former DNC chair and Clinton booster Debbie Wasserman Schultz accused Tlaib of anti-Semitism. To be clear, Anti-Semitism is real and rising in the United States. Who can forget the chilling images from Charlottesville, where dozens of men with torches chanted, the Jews will not replace us, before one white supremacist killed counter-protester Heather Heyer with his car. The following year, an anti-Semite killed 11 Jewish worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue and wounded six others. Described as the deadliest rampage against Jewish people in US history, Despite the conservative leanings of these white nationalists and their at times open identification with conservatives like Donald Trump, Trump avoided condemning the Charlottesville anti-Semitism. Remember this from the 2020 debates?
6: Are
4: you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and
0: to say that they need to stand down and not...
5: Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right wing problem. This is a left wing.
7: This is a left wing wing Um, problem.
1: Like Trump, Netanyahu engages in both siderism in this both in this interview, saying the communists blame the Jews for being capitalists, the capitalists blame the communi- the, 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 the 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 communists for being uh, the Jews are being communists rather. If you have a problem, blame the Jews, but that's a gross over, oversimplification of American history. It was Jewish communists who were disproportionately targeted during the McCarthy era for advocating for a pro-worker progressive communist government, not the other way around. Joe McCarthy was documented as having defended Nazis, and the House Committee on Un-American Activities that targeted so-called subversives, who dared to hold anti-establishment political views, targeted Jews. One after the other, the people in effect put on trial by the committee were Jews. Not exclusively so, but enough to make the case, writes historian Michael Friedland. Certainly, anti-Semitism can be found everywhere, including on the left. But in this interview, Maher and Netanyahu do not meet out their critiques evenly. In fact, they applaud Donald Trump for being, quote, good to Israel. And while Maher attempts some critique of Trump for his role in 1-6, Bibi Netanyahu demurs.
4: And there is no doubt that uh, Donald Trump as president was... Good to Israel, got the capital moved to Jerusalem, which had been on the table for a very long time, and, and these accords that you mentioned happened into that administration. But can you keep those two ideas in your head at the same time, that he was good to Israel, but he's also a dangerous demagogue who tried to have a coup in this country and does not respect democracy or democratic norms?
5: Well, you know, I've had enough with, with Israeli politics, so I'm going to leave that to you.
1: With antisemitism on the rise, it is important to call out antisemitism when it rears its head. And part of that is calling out antisemitism even when it's being offered up by folks who are quote unquote good to Israel for geopolitical reasons, even as they fail to support Jewish people who are attacked on the basis of their faith. This episode of Bill Bill Maher's show was ostensibly a conversation, remember, about Ye's genuinely antisemitic remarks. So I ask you again, why was only a sliver of time devoted to anti-Jewish sentiment from a Trump-aligned conservative? Why the pivot to criticizing legitimate humanitarian concerns from a progressive congresswoman who criticized not Jewish people, but a country whose actions against the people of Palestine are at this point uncontroversially understood as occupation and apartheid? As APAC, a pro-Israel lobbying group, is increasingly involved in U.S. elections, often targeting progressives in Democratic primaries, including Jewish progressives, it is important to be able to criticize Israel-aligned groups, with outside criticism being conflated with antagonism for people who are Jewish. And it is important that real moments of anti-Semitism, like statements made by Yeh, are not minimized by those seeking to use this moment to fight geopolitical battles. This episode of Mars show was one of the most appalling examples of whataboutism I've ever seen, so much so that even his own audience turned against him. Quote, every single time I tune in into a, a, a YouTube Bill Maher clip, I find his humor and his take on religion and politics and popular culture absolutely spot on. He's so adept at capturing the essence of a story with a prodigiously incisive wit. So after watching this, I'm left asking the question, what the F happened this time, said one top poster. "Quote." Bill, it's just asking the, it's asking the barman if the beer is good. Of course it is. Of course Israel's not doing anything wrong if you ask him. Come on, I expected more from you, said another. If, if Mar is interested in having a real conversation about anti-Semitism, I'd love to host it here or on any other platform. But this, this wasn't real engagement with the problem of anti-Semitism. It was a PSA for occupation, and Mar's audience was poorly served by it. So that got a lot of pushback, his interview did, not just uh, for the reasons that I articulated, but because uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was also in the middle of a corruption scandal that Marr asked him zero questions about. It was all softball lobs, and it was really weird to watch something that was ostensibly about Kanye West, 90% of which ended up being about these progressive congresswomen's tweets and kind of defending Israel's actions in the region.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, he should have been asked about the corruption allegations. Although with those kinds of interviews, you never know if like a condition of landing the interview was, we're only going to talk about yeah, this. Yeah, but that's
1: the problem. Of that, that's exactly the problem. People well, are asking, why do you invite Benjamin Netanyahu on? Yeah. For a segment to talk about Kanye West tweets.
0: Yeah, uh, but okay, but we did get around to. I mean, the Ilan Omar quote, as you acknowledged, was genuinely very, very, very badly. Yeah, what she said I was acknowledge, bad. Acknowledge,
1: acknowledge. I have no interest um, in defending
0: it. Yeah, so look, uh, you, you you can find. Um, and you talk about, you know, rising hate crimes against uh, Jewish people, et cetera. You know, like, these are often not ideological, as far as I can tell, or they're, or they're, they're certainly not traceable to a discernible right-wing ideology. It's not, um, it's not.
1: The, the Tree of Life synagogue uh, person That one was, was
0: and then like, a couple months later, there was, a, anti- there was the knifing attack on a, on a, during a Hanukkah. That was just a mentally ill African-American man. Uh, yeah. The attacks so the, so the, on the streets so the question, of New York are mentally ill people, is, when by and Trump, large committed by black people. But, but
1: Robbie, why is, this, why is this deflection from... It's not deflection. No, no one in the Democratic Party has an issue, and no one, no one on the left has an issue saying that any one of those attacks is horrific, and anti-Semitism, people attacking people on the basis of being Jewish and on the basis of their faith and ethnicity, mm-hmm. is patently wrong. As we saw in that clip, when Donald Trump was asked to simply say that on the debate stage, he, he couldn't. And he famously said, stand back and stand by, and offered a lot of tacit support to groups like the Proud Boys. TACIT support?
0: I think he could have condemned them much more full-throatedly, sure. So look, on, one, I... si-
1: on one side, you have Ilhan Omar called out for a mm-hmm. very bad tweet, a very bad statement, saying, that was wrong, it was anti-Semitic, and I shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. When asked to do the same, Donald Trump, but Trump does not. not say what she and at said. The, and at the same didn't time, but there are people who are openly expressing their support for Donald Trump had a tragic event where they ended up killing someone in the course of their protest. Donald Trump was asked to disavow them because they, uh, uh, they, they expressed their support for him. That's not his fault, right? People can like you, and you can't like them back. But right. then you have to say, oh, I don't like you back, and I disavow what you're doing. Donald Trump demurred, wasn't willing to say that. And then in the course of the interview that we just watched, Benjamin Netanyahu and Bill Maher go out of their way to, to give credit to Trump and laud Trump for being quote-unquote good to Israel. And this is a fundamental problem. The conservatives who are often, have, I'm sorry, like the the, the the white supremacist energy in this country is right aligned. It is. And so there is this weird way in which being good to Israel and supporting these kind of hawkish policies, which still... The majority of the democratic party uh, the sorry the majority of the republican party support despite there being this niche anti-war movement within the republican party now but the majority of republicans have have substituted the idea of being pro-israel for its own world-building geopolitical reasons with the idea of being a friend of jewish people including jewish people in the united states and that is a dangerous conflation because it means every criticism of what the israeli state does is Described as anti Semitic? Obviously, I don't
0: think it's it's de facto anti Semitic to criticize some aspect of the Israeli government or even to question um, giving aid to Israel as Republican figures, including Rand Paul, routinely do and oppose. Um, I'm more so I I mean, I agree with you on that, and yeah, the interview was kind of all over the place. Um, But I, I take umbrage at characterizing. The rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes, as discernibly attached as maybe you're not doing, but yeah, I see in, done in the media yeah. all the time. Well, try, the I, I rise agree. in bullying in school. Everything yeah, is about it's the not Trump effect, but, and it's not. Yeah,
1: I do. I do want to be careful about it. it's not. It's not Republicans' fault. There are people who can do crazy things that can uh, articulate right. their support of any number of parties, and that's not their fault. I completely agree with you on that. But what what, what became what I think earned Donald Trump a dif- different degree of scrutiny at that moment was an unwillingness to disavow what should have been a no-brainer. In the same way that, i got—I got to say, Ilhan Omar was willing to do.
0: But and, I'm saying, but they're not the same thing because she said something really bad, and then she apologized for it as she should. Yeah, well,
1: all, all I know is that if somebody were doing hor- horrific things in my name and being anti-Semitic in my name, I would say, obviously, that wasn't something that I supported. Mm. And, and, it, and, it, and it wouldn't have been the media cycle that it ended up being for the reasons that I think most people understood. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for that, Brianna. We'll have more rising right after this. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> President Biden has made his feelings toward Fox News reporter Peter Ducey pretty clear. He's gotten snappy with the journalist on more than one occasion, even going as far as calling him a stupid son of a... You remember. <laughs> he went after Ducey again yesterday uh, when Ducey pressed Biden on which issue? Inflation or abortion is the most important. And Biden responded like this
5: Top domestic issue, inflation or
0: abortion.
4: All All important. Unlike you, there's no one thing. It crosses the board. Domestic, ask me about foreign policy too. There's multiple, multiple, multiple issues, and they're all important. And so, and we ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. You know that old expression? Thank you.
0: Hmm
1: yeah i i have to agree with joe biden there it's a ridiculous question what what is more important your children's health or your job? What is more important, your ability to eat or ability to keep your food, uh, your roof over your head? And I mean, it's an an absurd question. And I will, to Ducey's credit, say that the Democrats have been posing that question to themselves as well. As we've talked about on the show a number of times, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, has made the recommendations to the Democratic Party to expand its messaging to be inclusive of, but not exclusive, to abortion. And people have attacked him from the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. arguing that that means he does not care about abortion, which obviously isn't true. You can do both. You have to do both. Right. We
0: saw Nancy Pelosi asked similarly by a mainstream or liberal mm-hmm. journalist. I forget on which network, but it says it's not just Fox News or conservatives trying to gotcha over you know whether it is. It, yeah. And it, the question is, you know, it's tactical, obviously. It's apparent that like you know the democratic platform has a million issues on it, so does the Republican platform. Honestly, both parties think a lot of things about a lot of different issues um the The question is where is the emphasis and I, what I suspect Ducey was doing is trying to put the emphasis back to um Democrats not you know doing enough the 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 appearance that Biden is not yeah. addressing Americans' economic woes and is instead focused on abortion um which is a there's a perception is not a is not an issue that matters as vastly to as many people.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know Biden could respond by taking that on a little bit more uh, strongly, saying of course the eco- the economy is paramount, and these issues mm-hmm. are related as well. I saw a number of people online pointing out that so much of why people have un- unplanned pregnancies, so much of why people feel like they cannot have pregnancies that they otherwise might want to bring to term is an economic issue as well. So to the extent that you want to be able to, to support the extent that the everything
0: life... is an economic issue, Well, yeah,
1: right? I, mean, I mean, yes. Every single yes.
0: issue it's, has some economic component to it. It's the economy,
1: it. stupid, <laughs> as yeah, they say. Bill Clinton
0: knew something that, uh, <laughs> that uh, many uh, subsequent political uh, ex- so-called
1: experts right. don't. Right, well, President Biden has kept a fairly low profile this election cycle, not hitting the campaign trail since late summer. With talk swirling again about an imminent red wave, Bernie Sanders is taking matters into his own hands.
0: The progressive senator is planning on going to key states where he'll be attending 19 rallies in the hopes of rallying voters, especially young people, to get out and vote in the midterms. Mm, The young people, that (laughs) strategy's never gone wrong before.
1: All right, Robbie. (laughs) Sanders will make stops in battleground states, especially those with hotly contested Senate races, but it remains to be seen which state, statewide candidates he might throw his weight behind. He said to embark on the two-week blitz on October mm. 27th. So yes, it is true that it, I think it is naive to think that you can win an election solely on turning out young voters. I hope that changes at some point in the future, and I definitely think politicians should always continue to try to mobilize all constituents mm-hmm. that don't vote in, in high numbers. But you also can't win... Without young voters, especially the Democratic Party that disproportionately does rely on young voters, you've got to figure out how to turn them out. And Biden was suffering from really abysmal poll numbers with that constituency group. Mm-hmm. Poll numbers that, if it, they had been at that rate going into 2020, might have cost him the general election. Mm-hmm. So I do think that this is a, a, an important task. Right.
0: But it's not about numbers overall, right? It's about the numbers in the key, the, the sure. sliver of states, the small number of municipalities where... Who you know who controls our government will be will be decided. What the outcome of Georgia is, Pennsylvania, Nevada, et cetera. And uh, I don't know. I'm you know I've been looking more at the polling, and uh, it, the wind has really returned to Republican sales as of late. Um, the polls show are, basically are showing uh, like a slight Democrats ahead a little bit, but. In the last several cycles, the polls have also have have overstated. uh, Democrats have not performed as well as polls would suggest. Uh Getting to some kind of fundamental polling issues, whereby low trust voters who do not you know don't have trust in our system, um, who are not answering pollsters' questions, um, who are maybe not who are being evasive or don't want to discuss where they're thinking or what their views are, these are Republican voters, and they are just being under-sampled across the board. I, I, like, that's very, that's becoming very, yeah. it's happened enough times now, yeah. where I think it's hard to deny that phenomenon.
1: I think that's true. I think you also have to look at what happened in Kansas over the um the the vote to, ban, to have a state ban on sure. abortion there, sure. where in a state that nobody would ever consider a blue state, or particularly a liberal bastion, at least not since it's storied labor history there was this overwhelming uh rejection of the Mm -hmm. idea of a statewide abortion ban from people who don't necessarily identify as progressive or liberal or anything of the sort but who very feel very strongly about that issue and i think that's part of why you're seeing all of this weird pressure from folks like peter Ducey to try to get the democratic party to make a choice between abortion and the economy because it is the case that pairing those Mm -hmm. things together and really messaging hard on both of those issues could have a really strong result for Democrats insofar so far as it brings a bunch of moderates and conservatives out who do care very strongly about basic abortion rights and also do care about the economy. But I
0: think Republicans are being pretty message-disciplined, with a, a couple exceptions, Lindsey Graham being uh, a, a major one in the let's have a na- conversation about a national abortion ban. Uh, that aside, but nobody liked that he said that. That aside, Republicans are being pretty di- message-disciplined about this issue right now. They're not talking about how, you know, if we retake... Again, yeah, except it, it for Lindsey it Graham. It doesn't matter
1: not, anymore, Robbie. Republicans—the boys that—the boys that called Wolf. At the end of the day, they've been saying for decades now that they're not going to touch right. Roe, that they have no interest in overturning Roe. And the second they got the votes on the Supreme Court to do it, they did it. So no one, frankly, believes a word that's coming out of any Republican's mouth. Lindsey Graham might be the one that's saying the quiet part out loud, but everyone, I think—Oh, I think they might absolutely the quiet, try to do it part. if they got
0: right. power, but they're just not saying right. they're going to do right. it. Right.
1: But the Democrats are ringing that bell out and clear. Yeah. And I think as we saw in Can this. And I think that as we've seen in polls across the country, there is a reason why Democrats are, are emphasizing the abortion message. And I don't yeah. think that's wrong. I just don't think it should be mutually exclusive to also talking about the yeah.
0: economy. I don't know. I'm looking at, I, there's a near, so so the, the polls give, uh, obviously Republicans are our favorite to to retake the House. I think that's a virtual certainty at this point. There, I, I can't imagine them possibly not taking it. So then it, it comes down to the Senate where you have you know, we're 50-50 right now. And it, it, I, think, I, I personally, I think the Nevada race is really going to decide it. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm, Georgia, maybe. I tend yeah, to, th- it's I, Pennsylvania, I'm not, Arizona, I'm not so much but, in the
1: prognosticating business. I think mean, the real question is, why did we get to this place? How did it get yeah. so close in the, in the first place? And if you really did care so much about... Uh, abortion rights, why is it that you're dangling, um, codifying Roe as this carrot at this stage, making people, who, who at this point believes after all of the obstru- obstruction that we've seen, the inability to get anything done, even with the Democrats having the House and the Senate, that afterward, either we're going to get so many seats in the Senate that you have a filip- filibuster proof uh, majority, or you know you magically have a convinced Manchin and sentiment to go along with your agenda. Again, this is the boy who has called Wolf on the Democratic side of the aisle. I think there's a lot of um, disaffectation and lack of trust in the Democratic Party. And using an issue as important as abortion and dangling as a carrot to get people to the polls does feel cynical to a lot of people as well.
0: All right. Well, uh, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay
1: tuned. Americans are not happy with the mainstream media. A New York Times-Siena College poll published earlier this week found that nearly 60% of registered voters see the media as a major threat to society, while 25% see it as a minor threat. 15% of respondents view the media as being no threat at all.
0: Hmm. Some voters have turned to social media to get their news, but with increasing censorship of speech on these platforms, questions remain as to whether they're a better option. Barstool Sports founder and CEO Dave Portnoy shared his thoughts this week about the future of free speech in America. Here he is on Fox Business.
4: Yay, West is buying Parler. Trump's got uh, Truth Social. Musk will probably take over Twitter. What's the, where's free speech headed in America these days?
0: Well, I guess
4: you
5: can look at it either way. I mean, they're all buying it because, for the different platforms because they think they got regulated a little bit on it. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I you know, who
7: it's always a fine line in the sand with any of that stuff. Who gets to decide what's over the line?
4: You know, Twitter has plenty of examples of really bad people who don't get banned and then they'll kick yeah. Trump off. Yeah. And I don't care who you feel on either of them, but who gets to make that decision? And the truth of the matter is, you know, technology is now like freedom of the press, but they're privately owned. So it's it's a slippery slope.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, kind of an unexpected. Shouldn't, maybe shouldn't say unexpected, but there's a level of nuance there that I don't think is often in these conversations. It, it, there's an acknowledgement that even though I think a lot of these very wealthy individuals who are buying up these platforms are doing so because they're rightly critical of the lack of transparency that is associated with the moderation decisions at the major existing platforms you are kind of jumping out of the frying pan into the fire because now you're reliant on the goodwill of individual billionaires who also don't have any accountability structure in place other than maybe they don't want to get ratioed online um to do the right thing
0: Right, and uh, his point about these being—they are privately, they are business. They right. are businesses. Uh, in some sense, you know, we talk about free speech because we, we want—we want there to be free speech on these platforms. Um, they have made commitments. They've stated all they've said they're going to be free speech platforms, yeah. even even before you know, even before someone like Musk comes in who has a much more firmly stated uh, in in in. In what he said, at least, we'll see what it looks like yeah. in practice. Uh, but Zuckerberg, Dorsey, and you know, previous owners of these social media sites, the Zuckerberg still a current owner, um, have articulated these same promises. And it sounds like it would be better, so we want it. but. These are private businesses. They are, they're media companies. They're just media companies. Their, their business model is selling a curated user experience yes. to advertisers, which doesn't always align with any principle of free speech whatsoever. No. They're trying to sell advertisements.
1: It's a business. It's, it's yeah. capitalism. I'm sorry. This is, this is a fundamental issue. I think the the free speech framework, in a lot of ways, is not the right framework to be demanding here. Because, no. to be honest, nobody is actually wanting these platforms to be laissez-faire Wild Wild West. They would be no. unusable pornography kind of wastelands no. if that were truly the way these were run. And Mark Zuckerberg's initial insight into Facebook and what made it so popular was that it was going to be a website that, unlike MySpace, you had to have a college email to log into at first there were going to be there was going to be a, a standard format for every page it wasn't going to be colors and music starting to play when you clicked on somebody's profile there was a certain sanitized professionalism to Hmm. the whole thing and obviously it got opened up over time not the facebook (laughs) because it's cleaner look look i was there i was i was in those trenches i was one of the first thousand or so people to ever have an account because i was in college um at harvard at the time when it was invented as a freshman and i remember the changes over time and that insight was what everyone got oh wow this is something that you know, you can you can be friends with your mom on that. Everyone's the, the, mm-hmm. the uniformity and the sanitized nature of it was literally the draw. And I think we're all playing ourselves when we pretend as though we don't want some kind of moderation. The question is, is that moderation going to be non-ideological? We don't want these platforms right. advancing right. one particular ideology because we're concerned. It's and not is, our it, own is it going to be fair? It's and gonna is it going to be, gonna be the
0: rules consistently applied? Because it it is a better, uh, you know, it's been a good, social media has been a good environment, in my view, you know, for all the condemnations it gets um, or accusations that it has, you know. Through the election to Trump in 2016, and then through the election to Biden for the various suppression, I find it possible a lot of times to have more freewheeling conversations on social media than take place within the narrow confines of the mainstream media, yeah, which absolutely. which absolutely and increasingly wants to tell you what to think and wants to tell you what to think within a very very narrow, some semi progressive uh, but not left, uh, certainly progressive yeah. cultural social framing sure. that uh, that is not well represented in the rest of the country and and then misses some important stories relating to covid relating to Hunter Biden related other Biden. things. Um, I, I wanted to put up on screen, and I, I think this was the right place to discuss it. This tweet from uh, uh, Ben Collins. So he's on the the sort of misinformation beat mm-hmm. for NB, NBC News, which I think this is a great example of, like the misinformation people, people who are obsessed with the misinformation, mm-hmm. so often misinform their own audiences. He, he writes that betting markets are illogical because he's looking at how on if you on predicted, if you bet on individual states, it would look like the Democrats are going to win the Senate, but more people are betting on republicans to to win but that's that's just like statistics. that's that's wrong in, in terms of statistical analysis like even if each of the democratic seats has like a sixty percent chance mm-hmm. that doesn't but they they need all of them, so right. it' would still be right. like like there's some basic statistical right. like there's an easy answer for that question, right. in, in, like even, the, the even in the realm you, of expertise. Yeah. Right, right. The odds
1: yeah. that if you flip a, flip a coin, it's going to be on heads are 50%. But the right. odds that you flip a coin 10 right. times, and they're all going to be heads, is much, exactly. much lower.
0: Exactly. So, it's that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So, and I, maybe I'm picking on him a little unfairly. I'm sure I, we all have tweets every now and then that are not super smart. But no, all my tweets are good. All your tweets are, all your tweets are good.
1: <laughs> they're perfect tweets. But
0: nobody's seeing them, because you're being so <laughs> big, vigorously suppressed on the platform. Uh, but my, my only point being, is there's a certain kind of mainstream, uh, reporter reporter for a mainstream or liberal outlet yeah. who is just so worried about people seeing information that is wrong. Mm-hmm. But but the mainstream media misinforms all the time. Yeah. Sometimes by accident, sometimes not maliciously, but yeah. I, they they have no they have they have not to me demonstrated an ability to get a lot of these stories more right than just person on social media
1: yeah that that is true and look if the mainstream media wants to earn back some credibility they need to start having more diverse panels ideologically diverse panels on these kinds of shows bring people from the internet world onto the tv stop pretending like the people that you have on there have knowledge or credibility or authority just because they have you know a master's in this thing or worked for it oh, campaign 20 years ago for yeah. one month like it, it the, the 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 gap the perceived. Authority that people have when they go on the mainstream news is is it's malarkey. You can go on YouTube. A lot of these streamers, they are brilliant. The people who call into my call-in show have the depth of historical knowledge that sometimes makes my head spin. And I'll, I'll ask them like, "You spend all day, you know, you, you 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 know driving driving an Uber. You're an EMT, or I'm like, what is your background? How do you know all of this?" And I think that that that's part of the issue that there's been a real lack of respect for the audience from these news people, and they presume that having the little like. a series of three letters before or after their name gives them the authority to talk down to people and tell them what is and isn't true. It's the
0: worst. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Don't like it. Hate it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has voted unanimously to add COVID-19 vaccines to the federal Vaccines for Children program. The initiative provides thousands of free vaccines every year to children who otherwise might not receive them due to cost.
0: As the country braces for a COVID winter surge, new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths thankfully remain down nationwide, according to the CDC. However, alarmingly, positivity rates now reach upwards of 20 percent. Some of the busiest neighborhoods of Manhattan potential sign of what's to come as temperatures drop just this week dr anthony fauci called two new ba5 sub variants pretty troublesome for their ability to spread rapidly and evade antibodies created by the vaccine and previous infection so yeah there was a lot of um discussion mm-hmm. of this childhood uh, adding the the vaccine to the federal this federal registry for children so this registry is just to make it freely available mm-hmm. um, there is going to be a separate meeting, um, I think taking place today or sometime soon, about adding it to the schedule for mm-hmm. childhood vaccinations, um, which doesn't, I, I believe that doesn't um, absolutely mean it's mandated necessarily. That's still up to local jurisdictions, although there are probably many jurisdictions who just say what's ever on this childhood mm-hmm. list is, is mandated. That list Protects, if that vaccine's on that list, it essentially immunizes the company that makes it from lawsuits or liability. Like you just can't sue them over those. Mm. Um, And then many, you know, some, there's a general recommendation for children to get those vaccines. So I would be proceeding very carefully here because um, uh, there is a lot of debate over whether children need this vaccine. And the other vaccines which children do need could come to under more scrutiny as people, fi- people are going to say, mm-hmm. some people are going to say, wait, you're saying I have to get COVID for my kid. I don't believe that. That's not true. I'm not going
1: to do it. What are these other vaccines you're telling me yeah, I have to uh, get? That would be an interesting backlash effect. Look, I think that it is kind of on its face, troublesome to include a vaccine like COVID, which, and this isn't, you know, casting aspersions or conspiracy mongering. It just has not existed as long. It doesn't have as much testing behind the long-term effects of subsequent vaccines and boosters as a lot of these other uh, vaccines Mm -hmm. that are already on the register, right? It just, it is not in that world. It was a vaccine that was developed quickly to meet an emergency. So glad it was developed quickly to meet that emergency. But as time goes on, more scrutiny should be applied to the vaccine to make sure that it is doing what it's supposed to be doing and doesn't have long-term effects that were Unpredictable right. and that which, frankly, didn't seem to be as significant as the crisis we were needing to get through. Obviously, over time, we have to have more scrutiny on these kinds of things. So, immediately immunizing it from lawsuit at this immunizing it, <laughs> immediately yeah. shielding it yeah, from, yeah, yeah. from lawsuit at this stage seems to be very premature and
0: right. And, political, I don't know, and and giving any um, uh, additional reason for schools, yeah, lo- and I. And I because right now, almost no um, municip- its, it's very—it's rare for municipalities to be saying kids have to get them. Mm-hmm. Though they are doing that in DC schools. Um, are they certain, still? Did, did uh, it, they, they might have. They—they oh, they postponed it. Okay. But they—it's it, it, unclear. There's some some hard nudging that you can kind of get around, and very, and it's not happening everywhere. But this could be a move. Moves like this, because the the, the political actors at the state and local level really do look on these questions. This is why Fauci, I don't think, can totally sidestep the Well, I didn't say to shut down anything. I didn't say to close schools. You know, I, I, I don't have any power. I don't, I don't, I don't flip that switch. Mm-hmm. But the people who do flip that switch are, are very keyed into what you and Walensky and others are saying. Yeah. And, they're, and when, when notes of caution are sounded, they behave cautiously. Or when notes of utter and absolute confidence in the vaccines are sounded, they reflect utter and absolute yeah, confidence. No, nobody
1: wants the responsibility of being the one that made the decision. If you no. can appeal to some authority that is supposed to know That's better. Exactly what we're seeing you're, you're gonna do that
0: and we have not seen uh, we have not seen uh, significant evidence that the vaccines are harmful right uh, for children but we've not seen significant evidence that it, it's it's so much of an improvement over what their natural interaction with covid would be especially if they've already had it right so given that it seems very weird to to put it on the level of that anyone else should be making that decision Needles. instead of the family yeah. and the child and their doctor yeah. um, seem like the relevant decision makers.
1: Yeah, Well, it does seem like a good thing to have made it free. Uh, so this, sure, the first fine. part of the that's story, fine. making yeah. it accessible, I do think is an important yeah. move, as yeah, of funny. all medications.
0: Well, in other vaccine news, the CDC now officially recommends Novavax boosters for people who received Pfizer or Moderna's mRNA course. The agency's data shows only 35,300 people have received Novavax's protein subunit vaccine as a primary series so far in the U.S. That's compared to some 372 million Pfizer shots, uh, 235 million Moderna doses, and 18.9 million Johnson and Johnson shots. So you can. So
1: is this about some you know a, a lack of you know support for this vaccine in particular? Or do you think it's just the case that we're not being pushed to get vaccinated in the same way ways? Well, that this, we were this before? is the
0: vaccine that um, uses. A different technology. If I'm right. Correct. I mean, wasn't
1: the, the point of yes, this is that the, the people who were right. at, opposed to the mRNA technology, yes. the skepticism of mRNA technology, would should be happy about right. this one?
0: Right. And so they're now s- recommending this one as a booster, uh, as a good booster option for people who got one of the who got Pfizer or Moderna, which was not something they said initially when right. it was authorized, mm-hmm. um, which made it which gave it a very like who was going to use it then. Um, because it made sense as a, as a, you know, for if, if you're vaccinated but you're concerned about how much of this mRNA, mRNA technology you're ha- going to have to inject into yourself every how often, maybe this would be the one for you. So they've just, but before you you were not supposed to think that way. You weren't supposed to do that. But now they're saying you can Again, showing that they yeah, change their minds about weird... these things constantly. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's, well, look. Some we of all of expected them mind... to eventually say this. Yeah, so look, some of the changing of the mind is... Bad faith, and we've discussed that at length on the show. Some of the changing of the mind is learning things over time about how effective the vaccines are through clinical trials, which take time. You have to observe people over a period of time to know how effective they are, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I don't think that all of the skepticism is uh, appropriate, but they are in a little bit of a a weird pitch situation here from the government's perspective, because if you believe that the mRNA vaccines don't warrant any skepticism, it's weird to... Pitch the alternative as, hey, I know you don't like these other vaccines, which are totally fine, by the way, but here's what you should take if you, if you, for some reason, you know, there's a way that you Mm -hmm. can end up validating Mm -hmm. concerns about the other vaccines if you pitch this to the audience that had those concerns Mm -hmm. in the first instance. And so I wonder if that's part of why we haven't seen much of a conversation Mm -hmm. around these vaccines in, in the mainstream
0: always have to point out whenever we talk about this that other countries some of our peer countries in europe have, have are not taking the same uh, tact with uh, with recommending vaccines for young people. Uh-huh. Um, they're, they're not recommending them. Not, not only are they not requiring it, they're not even recommending it. So uh-huh. it's different, different people are looking at this data, and reasonable people can disagree, And which is why it is so important to keep having these conversations and allow people to discuss them. It's not spreading misinformation or lies or conspiracy theories to point out that different experts and agencies and 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 then just people in their normal in their lives are making different judgment calls and that's fine because it can be it can be a, a good choice for some people and a, and and a, not a necessary choice for others even within similar age ranges people have different health yeah. s- situations yeah. um yeah, if you have sure. a, if you have a very unhealthy or compromised young person who hasn't had covid yet you might say that hey they should get you know, one of these yeah, next. Which is why it's a good thing when
1: these things are free and, and broadly yeah. accessible. So we'll keep following that story the story about whether or not COVID gets added to the schedule and also these new variants that are coming down the pike. And stick around for more rising after this. Earlier this week, Managing Editor at The Lever, Joel Warner, joined us on Rising to discuss reporting that the Republican governors rejecting the pardon of low-level marijuana offenders have raked in big campaign donations from the private prison industry. Let's take a listen to some of that interview.
7: The prisons themselves have admitted in their reports that uh, the cannabis reforms, uh, including the ones that the president announced a few weeks ago, are going to have an impact on their bottom lines. Literally, they will just, you know, so many of their prison cells have been filled with uh, the victims of the war on crime that now that we're seeing reform efforts, uh, I think you have a lot of these large operators who are getting quite nervous. So I think what we're going to see is uh, these private private prison industries really pushing um, how these reform laws are going to be passed instead of focusing on more of uh, the prison reforms more of uh, pardoning low-level kind of cannabis convictions, less of uh, expunging former kind of cannabis records it's going to be focused more on just legalization efforts and less on actually kind of reforming some of the harms of the war on drugs in the past.
0: But according to a March report by the nonprofit prison policy initiative, only eight percent of confined persons are held in private prisons. Here's some of their data. It shows that 13,000 people are being held in local jails, 9,000 in youth systems, 16,000 for immigration enforcement, and 40,000 for the U.S. Marshals and the Bureau of Prisons, 71,000 for state prison systems. The data also show that one in five are locked up for drug offenses. The majority are being held in state prisons. Joining us now to respond is the spokesperson for Day One Alliance, Alex Wilkes. Day One Alliance is a trade association representing private sector contractors addressing correction and detention challenges in the U.S. Alex, welcome.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, you know we absolutely believe on this show in having good faith discussions and debates from conflicting and contrasting perspectives. So I know you objected to um, some of the reporting in uh, that, that piece from The Lever, the guest we had earlier in the week. What is um, your issue with, uh, with with what came out of that report?
6: Well, a couple things. And this is often a myth that we hear in this debate, which is that somehow uh, contractors are responsible for driving mass incarceration. And when you look at the statistics, like you just pointed out, it's mathematically untrue. Uh, it's impossible when uh, the contractors make up 8% of the total amount of incarcerated men and women in this country. Um, so, I mean, there are other forces that, that are driving those things. The contractors are not one of them. Uh, moreover, uh, the uh, you know these companies have been actively involved um, from the very beginning, in criminal justice reform um, efforts like the First Step Act, uh, Ban the Box, uh, these were early adopters of these uh, of these different initiatives um, because they do believe in um, in giving people a fresh start. So, um, and having the best possible outcomes for the people in their care.
1: Yeah, I do think that there's a couple of things going on here. One, Biden's plan won't actually let anybody out of prison. So, you know, the implications there are kind of limited for any prison system, including the private prison system. And obviously, we take your point that only a small percentage of prisons in total are actually private prisons. I think that part of the reason, though, that private prisons do get a lot of attention and focus in this debate is for scandals like the one we saw, one of which just happened in, in, in August, where judges who sent uh, prison sorry, children to for-profit jails for kickbacks were ordered to pay more than $200 million in damages. These two judges, Mark uh, Ciavarella and Michael Conahan, shut down a, co- a county-run juvenile detention center and accepted $2.8 million in illegal payments um, from the builder and co- co-owner of two private prisons um, as part of this kickback scandal. And and And, and also when you look at the subject of Monday's reporting, which was the money that has been given to these GOP donors who are in turn opposing uh, Biden's uh, criminal justice reform plan here in this instance with respect to marijuana users, if there is this um, obvious connection that people start to draw intuitively between three governors raking in more than 263000 from donors, Um, from private prison industry donors and their opposition to Biden's plan. So what do you say to people who see a relationship there and have skepticism about the role that private prisons are are playing in this country?
6: Sure, well, a couple of things. So the Day One Alliance represents the major contractors in the uh, contractor-operated detention um, and correctional space. Uh, Our contractors were not involved in in the case that you just mentioned um and uh they have long um since or they have long had lobbying bans on um uh lobbying uh elected officials uh for how long um somebody's sentence should or should not be um that's something that all of the member company companies have long committed to so um that's certainly not true of the members of the day one alliance um but what i would say generally is that the uh the member companies have given to uh, members of both parties um, they've worked with members of both parties for over uh, 40 years now to address uh, challenges um, for example in California when there was unconstitutional um, overcrowding it was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court when uh, vice president Kamala Harris was AG uh, contractors were brought in to help alleviate those dangerous and, and th- that dangerous overcrowding that was occurring there so um, these uh, these companies have worked with Uh, members of both parties, they give in to members of both parties, and it's a tiny fraction compared to uh, all of the millions of dollars that are spent each year. So, um, you know, what our contractors are focused on is being the best possible service provider for the government, Um, being able to come in, address challenges, um, have evidence-based solutions to reduce recidivism, um, to be able to get people into treatment. Um, and uh, there are outcome um, in terms of the outcomes that these uh, contractors are able to provide, uh, they meet or exceed what public um, institutions are able to do. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think the the one other concern that people have about uh, private prisons, and I'd love you to speak to this, is that you know the whole point of private prisons coming into being was to basically be able to provide for a growing prison population that the, the state federal prisons couldn't accommodate and to house people at a lower cost and people believe that you know certain bad statistics coming out of p- private prisons as compared to public prisons speak to the fact that the profit motive here is is the is the is the culprit so for example um, one statistic shows that 691 fatalities out of, a, of the total of a much smaller total prison population, as you as you mentioned, you know there were 691 fatalities out of 138,000 inmates in a three-year span, versus publicly managed jails, which had 587 fatalities. So fewer fatalities when caring for more than 152,000 inmates, a bigger population. And I wonder if you could speak to people's concerns about the treatment of pe- of prisoners in of incarcerated people in private prisons versus public prisons?
6: Sure. There's plenty of research out there, um, like I said, too, uh, that that shows that the outcomes that uh, come out of uh, contractor-operated facilities meet or exceed what public institutions are able to offer. And moreover, um, think about what a a contractor is with the government. Um, It's a two-way street. It's an actual contract, right? So the government sets the terms of that contract, and I think that that's something that's... Widely misunderstood about um, what we're dealing with here. People often assume that there are just two parallel systems of justice. The the contractors are on the receiving end of a public adjudication um, of what happens in the public process in the public arena. So um, they don't choose who comes to their facilities. They don't um, they don't uh, select who's there and who's not. Um, they're on the receiving end of that, and their their goal is to be the best possible. Service provider and to pro- provide a savings to taxpayers and to provide great outcomes for the women, that, the men and women in their care. Um, so, I mean, there uh, there are plenty of um, outcome-based um, uh, evidence, uh, you know, based um, studies out there that show that the contractors are able to offer better solutions in these instances um, than public um, facilities are. And I'll I'll pose this question to you. Um, How do you shut down a failing public institution Um, with a with, you know, the contractors? This is a a two way street. The government can end the contract. Uh, We've seen plenty of examples of horrible failing public prisons um, for which there is no end in sight uh, because it is too difficult to unwind um, those types of situations. So uh, in a lot of ways, there are more um, layers of accountability when it comes to contractor operated facilities. I've been to some myself. Uh, not only do you have uh, health and safety inspections coming in from from the state you have uh, contract compliance officers there uh, from uh, both the member companies and from the government who are coming in and they're making sure that uh, everything is being adhered to exactly um, exactly to spec in the contract so um, it's different it, you know it's it's different in the public facilities where you just don't have that level of oversight
7: mm.
0: Alex Wilkes, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And we'll be back with more Rising right after this.
1: Rent is going up and up in the United States. The median rent in the U.S. is now over $2,000 for the first time, according to the People's Action Home guarantee. The organization says rent is a driving factor in inflation, which is rising faster than it has in over 35 years. Minimum wage workers in New York City need to work over 100 hours a week to afford rent, according to CNBC News. The People's Action Home Guarantee is working to fight high rent in the United States, and campaign director at the People's Action Homes Guarantee, Tara Raghavir, joins us now to weigh in. Welcome, Tara.
8: Thanks, Brianna. Thanks for having me.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about what's driving this crisis?
8: Sure. So one important thing we need to understand is that rent inflation is nothing new. Actually, for the better part of the last decade, rents have been going up and up. Landlords are charging rents not based on the quality or condition of the home, but based on whatever the market will allow. The root of this crisis is that the federal government has all but abdicated its responsibility to provide our homes and turn that responsibility over to the private market and then not regulated that market enough, especially in the last decade since the last financial crisis. Now that market is a sort of Wild West scenario where profiteers are extracting more and more wealth from everyday people and folks just don't uh, don't. Uh, have the means to make it work. The rent is too damn high across the country, and as you said, rent is a core factor driving overall inflation. Uh,
0: My uh, understanding is that this is primarily caused by a lack of availability, housing availability that could be solved by getting rid of zoning restrictions that make it very difficult to build out density in um, areas a lot of people want to live. Um, you know how difficult to build new high-rises, you know, single family occupancy unit requirements that are always, uh, that that many people in the neighborhoods, you know, want to keep in place, but should absolutely be gotten rid of for the good of, like, humanity. Um, is, is uh, Is that your perspective as well?
8: There's absolutely a shortage of truly affordable supply in the American housing market. And we disagree with supply as the only response and especially the urgent response to this crisis. It's consistently the only thing that we're hearing from the president and his economic advisors. We just need to build more. But there's a couple issues with that argument. First of all, we can't rely on the private sector to solve a problem of its own making, right? That sector depends on driving for their profits. They're not going to reduce the rents because there is, or automatically because there's more supply in the market. And in a highly speculative housing market, more supply doesn't necessarily mean lower costs. And then finally, The argument that we've been making with the president and his team these days is that increasing supply and, you know, passing policy or instituting measures that push for more supply uh, now may impact the market in five plus years. But that really doesn't do anything to alleviate the pain that people are in today when the rent is too damn high across the country and people can't make their bills at the end of a month.
1: So what kind of solutions are you proposing?
8: so we've put out a call for a set of federal actions we think the president needs to sign an executive action that directs the federal housing finance agency fhfa to regulate all government-backed properties and say you know what if you're receiving public financing or subsidy you can't raise the rent more than three percent in a given year right we also need ftc the federal trade commission to be investigating um, unreasonable rent hikes Recently, there was a blockbuster ProPublica investigation that revealed that there are algorithms and softwares that corporate and institutional investors are using to set rental rates across the country, and that's been a core driver of rent inflation. We need FTC and the Congress to be investigating those types of technologies and actually regulating that practice in the market. Ultimately, we need a National Tenants' Bill of Rights, and we need the federal government to commit to providing homes that are off of the market and not available for speculation. But it's those urgent solutions that we need the president to take action on in order to alleviate the crisis that people are are feeling today.
0: A report from the real estate company Redfin shows the number of homes sold fell by 25 percent and new listings dropped by 22 percent last month. It's interesting to note that, according to Redfin, economic researcher, the U.S. housing market is at a standstill, but, quote, the driving forces are completely different from those that triggered the standstill at the start um, of the pandemic. And we have had some guests on recently – who are predicting that um, uh, housing prices are going to collapse, which be you know, bad for people who own homes currently, but could actually be good news for people looking to buy. Um, how would that impact the rent situation?
8: Well, the first thing that we need to discuss is the Fed's activities recently. You know, before we started taping, we were talking about whether or not it's better to just buy these days because the rents have gotten so high across the country. The reality is the activity that the Fed is taking right now by hiking interest rates is actually making the problem even worse in the short term, right? It's forcing would be home buyers to remain renters, which is putting even more pressure on the existing crisis in the rental market. Now, in a world of recession, if the mortgage market bottoms out, then we have another crisis that looks a lot more similar to the one that we had 10 years ago, where the most vulnerable people in the market are also the people who fall through those cracks and are hurt the most. That's poor and working class tenants and and working class homeowners as well.
1: So the issue is that even if home prices come down somewhat or even significantly if people can't uh, afford the the loans the basically the high interest loans that are required to buy any kind of property that they're going to still be forced to remain renters that's right Okay. Yeah. It, there's a lot of interesting dynamics at play. It does seem like, I mean, I take Robbie, your point, you're often bringing up the extent to which uh, zoning uh, restrictions and a lack of supplier an issue. I also hear people Townies. saying, Townies. <laughs> the, the, the enemies, yeah." I, and I also hear people saying, you know, we have a supply chain crisis. The reason why new construction is very expensive. Now there's the question of why there's so many empty units. There's, there's a lot going on here and we really appreciate you joining us to discuss it today. So thank you. Thank you. Stick around. We'll have more Rising for you right after this.
0: Texas is reportedly sending public school students home with DNA kits designed to help parents identify their children, quote, In case of an emergency, according to today, the Texas State Legislature passed a Senate bill in 2021 requiring the Texas Education Agency to, quote, provide identification kits to school districts and open enrollment charter schools for distribution to the parent or legal custodian of certain students, end quote. After the mass shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, May of this year, today says the kids are making parents feel even more anxious about sending their children to school. Um, yeah, that's insane. This, this is Completely wild. insane. And let's, look, mass, it's, they're horrific. They're horrible. They're, they, they consume our, t- because they're so hard to contemplate. But mass shootings in schools are not actually all that common. They are certainly not common enough to, to like as routine practice have something like this or have the, the other thing is mass shooter drills which schools do now are are, are, are more frightening and, and terrifying and intimidating for the school every now and then they don't tell the kids that it is a drill um
1: it, it, it's it's unne- it's not
0: necessary at all they're they're statistically so unlikely so
1: i don't know that i agree about the mass shooter okay. drill aspect of it because we did have that incident Remember just in, in uvalde The kids have been trained, for instance, not to open the door. Um, when when the, when someone says hi, I'm a cop, and you can come in, and they and they didn't open the door, and it really was a cop, and it seemed to me like that was one of those moments where like I'm I'm glad that they had that savvy. Eventually, you know, they were the kids in that room were able to be you know properly notified, but it was the cop who didn't actually have the training to know what they were supposed to do in that situation, not the kids. And if that is going to keep happening, if cops are going to continue to be as ill prepared as they were in Uvalde, I want the kids to know as much as possible. But I take your broader point about you know to have as a routine measure people. People taking DNA samples of children with the express purpose to identify their remains. I've seen that clear. That seems
0: too morbid. I've seen clear backpacks being used, um, which that's a assault on student autonomy and privacy. Um,
1: so how long is it going to take to do the DNA sample? I, don't even understand. I mean, I don't. What I really what are don't. they imagine? I mean, look, we have these horrifying stories out of Uvalde where parents, you know, that that speech that Matthew McConaughey gave with the uh, the little girl's green converse with like I think the star or the heart drawn on the toe. That was the way that they identified it, and and it's heartbreaking. But it has also seemed to me. That those kinds of things, clothing, backpacks, etc., are going to identify a child—God forbid—they're killed in one of these tragedies—so much quicker than the idea of like taking a blood sample and rushing it off to a lab. I
0: mean, yeah, they are again they're very truly tra- d- yeah. horrible to co- yeah. contemplate. They are identified at the yeah. in the hospital. It's not identifying has not been an issue.
1: So what do you think is driving this? I,
0: just, idiots making policy <laughs> decisions. <laughs> 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 people making you no know, knee-jerk. I mean, this is often, in knee-jerk policy, uh, laws passing in response to some tragedy yeah. is a tale as old as time. Sure. Often, uh, the, the policy often uh, not presenting yeah, some... Poorly tailored to poor, the activity. Very poorly That's tailored to, a, to, a, to an event that is not likely to be repeated. I mean, that
1: well, will happen again, again but... I, I don't know, that. I think that some things are so horrific that even if they're fairly infrequent, it's worth preparing and trying to guard against them. But the the intervention should be well tailored to the actual problem at hand. Now, reactions to this have been strong on the internet. The ACLU tweeted, asking children for their DNA uh, compromises not just their own genetic privacy, but the privacy of their family as well. Mass collection of our children's DNA is the wrong approach to keeping them safe. President of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, said, We shouldn't be passing out DNA kits to identify children after a school shooting. We should be working to ban the assault weapons used in these shootings and stop the unnecessary deaths of our kids. And founder of Moms Demand, a grassroots organization working to address gun violence in America, Shannon Watts, wrote, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is choosing to send DNA kits to schools that parents can use to identify their children's bodies after they've been murdered, rather than pass gun safety laws to proactively protect their lives. Vote uh, at, but it uh, Hashtag, sure. hashtag. Yeah. So I, I think I think points are being made here. The genetic privacy point in particular is yeah. one that was on my mind. Yeah, I, this is the reason I haven't done uh, the twenty four and me, whatever 23 it is, twenty three and me, <laughs> or any of those. Kinds Despite of your things. curiosity, obviously hey, about I, I, your, I, I'm curious. I'd love to to know a lot more. You know, a lot of Black Americans, for obvious reasons, are very interested to know a lot more about our uh, ancestry, since you know we didn't have the opportunity to pass those things down mm-hmm. uh, due to sla- slavery. But I, um, don't <laughs> because yeah, I I, I'm very either. concerned about what they're going to do with these. We live in a surveillance state. We talk about Amazon cameras. We talk about the game show based on Amazon cameras. We talk about putting chips in hands just so that we can have convenience at the grocery store. And now they want to literally cl- collect their children's DNA. I don't see how that's not going to a dystopian place.
0: Yeah, I haven't done it either. I'm going to, this Italian American so <laughs> wants to know more about his, his ancestry, but then I'm going to be like swamped with pasta advertisements or something. It's going to be all over social media. And I, I do like all all the stereotypical <laughs> Italian foods pretty it is my absolute basic palate not gonna not gonna right, not a right. very adventurous eater all right we'll, we'll continue here.
1: um talking about this over at Sabaros after the show yes <laughs> sweet but we'll have more rising for you right after this Russian President Vladimir Putin declared martial law in the four annexed regions of Ukraine effective starting today. The declaration, endorsed by Russia's parliament, restricts travel and public gatherings and gives law enforcement agencies more authority. In Russia, regional governors along Ukraine's border were given emergency powers that opened the door for broad restrictions across the country, though Putin did not specify what those restrictions would be.
5: Mm.
0: Ukrainian officials insist that Putin's orders will not stop their continued efforts to take back occupied territory, although they admit it could result in mass deportations of Ukrainians out of those regions and increasingly harsh treatment for anyone who remains there. Mm. I, you know, it's <laughs> important to remember, you know, war is abstract to us in the U.S., um, who are, you know, not, who do not live in a war zone unless we've been people who've been called obviously to serve overseas but most of us war is such a foreign concept but there are people you know in uh, in in Ukraine who are living through uh, invasion of their country bodies everywhere people dying buildings yeah. being destroyed and then a, you know restrictions on civil liberties both in in Ukraine and interior to Russia uh, because war brings out the worst in the state, um, even if even if you're on the defending side, uh, it can it it causes illiberalism of uh, the regimes. You know, restrict basic freedoms, um, engage in de- deportations. I mean, the things that the things that uh, our country did during World War II to Japanese Americans, et cetera.
1: Right. Well, look, and it's also important to note that people in the region have been involved in a civil war since 2014, and people in the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, up until and through this moment have had mixed feelings about Ukraine as well, with the Russian language being outlawed, with mm-hmm. bombing and shelling happening in the region even before this invasion, um, and so they've really been through it. Now, of course, Zelensky was the more
0: right. one won uh, won his election kind of as the more dovish candidate mm. um, initially. Yeah, um, and now, of course, is you know,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you're
0: wedded into uh, following the invasion well, with, with, into a with
1: the backing of the full might of the American yeah. military at whatever cost. Uh, who who wouldn't be turned into a, a little bit of a hawk? um so yeah look obviously this report is anticipating you know, the ukrainian rep- the ukrainian take from the initial read is that ukrainians in the region are going to be deported to ukraine and people in the region are going to be subject to um reprisals uh under russian conditions at uh, the the martial law conditions russia obviously opines that they are doing this in a way to protect the russian-speaking nationals of the region and around and around we go the uh, the outstanding question the same question that existed in february when this conflict started is what does a uh, peace negotiation look like and unfortunately it doesn't seem like we're any closer and to how that soon can we
0: get it going yeah. let's have that have that conversation happen yeah. the only way this conflict will end some kind of peace settlement that no one is totally happy with but um gives russia something and allows them to back out of this conflict yeah. it's the only way to do it yeah well, former Vice President Mike Pence reacted to claims by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy that if Republicans take back Congress, the U.S. will no longer be a, quote, blank check for the war in Ukraine. Take a listen.
4: Uh, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who wants to become the next Speaker of the House, has said, if Republicans take the gavel, that America will no longer be a blank check for the war in Ukraine. Do you take issue with that? You know, the United States throughout our history has understood that we need to be the leader of the free world. And that includes being the arsenal of democracy. And and in the days of Ronald Reagan, we, we understood the value of confronting the Russians and communism in the world, not by necessarily fighting them directly, but by making sure the people that were fighting the communists, whether in our hemisphere or other places around the world, had the resources that they need.
1: So he wants to go back to a 1950s-style dominoes uh, theory. We're going to chase down communists and dissidents in every corner of the world and get involved in every intervention there is. I mean, this is really highlighting this contrast between, I think, the bulk of the, Rep- the Republican Party, which is represented by Mike Pence's views here. But Mike and Pence is small, not popular
0: among the bulk sh- sh- of the Republican sure.
1: Party. Uh, well, the bulk of the Republican base. But in terms of Republican elected officials, the overwhelming majority, I think, do so align pop- with Mike well, when you look at these votes on Ukraine, mm. I, again, I will give Republicans credit for being having more people who vote against this funding than Democrats. But it is a small sliver of the Republican Party. It was eleven senators and uh, something like fifty 40, odd, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, House members. So this is yeah. not a majority, but any any come of the November
0: 9th, it's going to be more in the House. We'll see in the Senate. Um, Mike Pence does not know how to read the room uh, for the cons- broader conservative movement, or he does and he doesn't care. There, there could be that. He's just, like sincerely committed to an outdated version of the Republican Party that he is going to represent um, until he's. He, he sees himself as the spokesperson. I think he knows for a side <laughs> until, that is losing. Until
1: the one-six folks get their hands <laughs> on him. Oh, God. God. I mean, look, th- this is... But
0: he's not, he is not going to be, um, he will, he's not going to ever be the Republican nominee for president. I will make that
1: I, prediction. That, that, um, that he, he will
0: right. not ever have the, wh- which is quite a fall for him, because yeah. prior to, uh, to Trump losing and then everything that happened that Trump did and said that was very bad, that put him then, you know, it put, that put Mike Pence in a diffi- in a frankly impossible place, uh, but he will never have the support of enough of the base again. And and he's also not speaking to things that are important to them. And the base has somewhat—is de- definitely more in line with what McCarthy— I mean, and note that yeah. McCarthy didn't say we're going to um, cut off all funding for Ukraine on right. day one. He did not say we, we are unsympathetic to Ukraine or that we sympathize right. with— that. he said none of those things. He simply said that there's the, the as long as it takes, blank check policy, that is going to come. Yeah, a, a question. not that hard how, of Bart and me. How, how can you—who <laughs> can, you can, well, can
1: have a problem with that? Well, Mike going can have a problem with that. Maybe he should try being a Democrat.
0: <laughs> that is more. It is more likely that he becomes a Democrat than becomes a. He is a more likely Democratic nominee for president than a Republican 100%. nominee for president. I can see president. it now.
1: Oh goodness gracious! Yeah. I can see it now. The uh
0: the um the the Pence Cheney ticket. will be. You'll just. Uh, then you'll then you can do a Tulsi and you can exit. <laughs> we all just
1: look. I've, already, I've already exited right, the Democratic you're, Party. You're, yeah. Hillary Clinton was enough to chase me out of the Democratic Party. Unlike. Unlike Tulsi, I think I've been a little bit more vocal about my problems with the duopoly and how uh, corporate purchase of both political parties makes neither a real good home for progressives, independent-minded people who actually want to return power to the people. But I digress.
0: You can come to the Libertarian Party. We have no corporate p- backing or power or or anything That's, of the.
1: You you guys have corporate back. No.
0: That's no. Okay. no we don't.
1: We'll go we'll get no, into we, that.
0: No. 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 I assure you we don't. I wish it were otherwise.
1: <laughs> no. 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 Cokes.
0: No. Cokes no. On all right. Track. Fine. Well, I don't, I don't. know how much the, the. We should not get into this right no, now. I don't know to what. Right certainly now. in the past they. To in all fairness, in the past they have supported. Like, decades ago, a, a Coke was actually on the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party. Um ticket. I don't I don't think they're particularly more fodder for our
1: for
3: us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am I am quite hungry, so we should probably we should probably wrap. But we will be back next week. Same rising time, same (laughs) rising place.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go like I do, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts and also on Roku. Hooray! Alright, see you next week. Take care.